Chapter 3 of What is Industrial Democracy by Norman Thomas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. What is Industrial Democracy? Chapter 3 Trade Unions and Industrial Democracy. Every reader of the foregoing chapter will realize that I have ascribed to capitalism a more complete and despotic power over the workers than it has today, at least in the better organized industrial nations of the West. There are limits, very definite limits, which have already been set to the power of the owners over the lives of the workers. In setting those limits unquestionably, the chief force has been the trade unions. It is a somewhat ironic fact that in the volume of discussion of industrial democracy, which has mounted high within the last few years, so little space has been given to the activities of the unions. Employers have organized company unions, and their work has been acclaimed as an example of industrial democracy. Theorists have talked about syndicalism or guild socialism, and their theorizing has been applauded or derided as industrial democracy. Yet any realist who examines the situation must understand that the substantial force which has kept the worker, from abject slavery to the owner of the machine at which he is employed, is his trade union. This is true whether that particular union is conservative or radical, whether it talks merely of higher wages or dreams of social revolution. The Struggle Trade unions existed even before the advent of power-driven machinery. But it was the growth of machinery, joint stock companies, and absentee ownership which made the trade union movement an absolute necessity if workers were not to be kept as wage slaves to the owners of the machines. The fundamental principle on which the labor union movement has acted has been collective bargaining. The subjects of discussion under collective bargaining have been primarily wages and hours, and secondarily working conditions of one sort or another. The weapons labor has used have been the strike and the boycott, more especially the former. The strike may be a crude and wasteful weapon, but it has been the only one available to labor under certain circumstances, and though it is very often accompanied by violence, on the whole it deserves classification as a nonviolent method of coercion. Footnote. See Professor Clarence Marsh Case's interesting book, Nonviolent Coercion, The Century Company. End footnote. Labor has also used the ballot in its struggle for a fuller measure of the good life. Even the American Federation of Labor believes in some measure of political action, even though it may not yet accept the necessity for independent political action. Footnote. In 1886, the American Federation of Labor Convention urged a most generous support of the independent political movement of the workingmen, a position even then opposed by the leaders and soon abandoned for the policy of rewarding friends and punishing enemies. End footnote. A minority of American workers and the overwhelming majority of the workers in European countries have organized their own parties, socialist or communist in philosophy. Here there is no space to record labor struggles for freedom. They constitute a tremendously moving and heroic epoch which has never been properly recorded. It is a commentary on education that the children of the workers are taught to feel sympathetic admiration for politicians, generals, 
and soldiers, whose petty conflicts and bungling violence fill so many pages of what is called a history, while the heroes of the labor movement go unnoticed and unsung. For sheer heroism, for power to forget one's personal interest in the interest of one's group, for steadfast endurance of hunger, want, and actual persecution, there is little in all history to match the heroism of some of the great strikes. Men have arisen from the ranks of labor to organize and lead their comrades, well knowing that their activities made them marked men, blacklisted by the employers, subject to physical violence, arrest, and imprisonment, even perhaps to death, and yet they have gone on. Over the fallen heroes of this struggle, no Gettysburg oration has been delivered. Yet if at last government of the people, by the people, and for the people is an accomplishment and glorious fact upon the earth, they, rather than the warriors who loom so large in history, will be hailed as the emancipators of mankind. What the Unions Want In the American labor movement, the slogan most employed has been a modest one, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. That is not an adequate definition of industrial democracy. But, backed by organization and interpreted through collective bargaining, it has marked a real step on the road away from autocracy towards self-government in industry. It should be remembered, moreover, that American labor has not confined itself to this one slogan. The first federation of local unions in the United States, and probably in the world, took place in the city of Philadelphia in the year 1827. The federation was concerned not only with the problem of shortening the long working day, but also with a number of social problems, among which was obtaining an adequate public school education for the children of the workers. At various periods of its history, American labor has been interested, not always intelligently, in all sorts of political reforms and monetary proposals, as, for example, that political movement known in American history as Greenbackism. In the 80s, the Knights of Labor waxed and waned. It had a diffuse program of social reform, and it was organized without much regard for the divisions of workers in various trades. Indeed, its cardinal points were union of all trades, education, and producers' cooperation. After its decline in influence and power, it was natural that Samuel Gompers and his associates in the organization of the American Federation of Labor should insist on organization by trades and concentration of collective bargaining to obtain improvements in hours and wages. State federations, international unions, and the American Federation of Labor itself have, however, actively sought favorable legislation, even during the period of greatest concentration on collective bargaining. In particular, the unions have vigorously supported legislation regulating conditions of labor for women and children, classes of labor obviously harder to organize than men in the more skilled trades. Self-government in the needle trades. The most marked increase in workers' control through their own unions has taken place in the needle trades, which less than 20 years ago were classic examples of unorganized, sweated industries. They have won not merely the usual agreement on hours and wages, but regulations concerning sanitary conditions in the shops, and in some cases, concerning the number of machines and the distribution of work. Disputes are settled by joint conference, 
with final reference to a permanent and partial chairman. Beginning with the amalgamated clothing workers in Chicago, machinery has been, or is being, set up whereby the industry assumes responsibility for unemployment through joint employment offices and unemployment insurance, to the support and management of which both the Employers Association and the unions contribute. Footnote, C. Perlman, History of Trade Unionism in the United States, Macmillan, page 70. End footnote. The Baltimore and Ohio Plan In the great B&O shops at Glenwood, a shop committee representing the workers, employing its own engineer, has been responsible for greatly improved morale and for more efficient standards of production. This plan is significant, as opposed to some employee representation plans which we shall discuss later on, for three things. First, it originated in common agreement by the union officials and the railroad management. Second, the shop committee is organically connected with, and backed up by, national unions with collective agreements covering the whole Baltimore and Ohio system. Third, the railroad management in return for improved standards of shop production is doing its utmost to keep the shop supplied with work so that the men gain, not lose, by efficiency. The plan seems to be working well. Footnote. I have been told by a trustworthy observer, who himself worked for a time in the shops, that in his experience all the men's suggestions making for efficiency were adopted promptly, but not the suggestions making for human comfort. Such criticism points to a real danger. End footnote. It has been copied on the Canadian National Railways and on the Chicago and Northwestern and the Chesapeake and Ohio. The Plum Plan Far as is the road traveled under these agreements, since the days of absolute industrial serfdom, they scarcely can be said to give organized labor a direct responsibility for the management of industry and its success or failure. But such direct government of industry has also, within recent years, received the attention of labor unions. The railway workers, through the great brotherhoods and the other unions, led the way in larger demands by their endorsement, shortly after the armistice of the Plum Plan. The essence of this famous plan was ownership of the railroads by the nation, with tripartite control by a directorate, representing the consuming public, the technical and managerial groups, and the workers. Its author was attorney for the railroad unions, and his plan commended itself to them, partly because they had been habituated to the idea of public regulation over railroads and other public utilities. The plan itself at first swept on like a prairie fire, but like a prairie fire, it seemingly has burnt out. The rank and file of the railroad workers had not thrashed out the plan in their own meetings, it was suddenly handed down to them. As a class, they were too divided and too absorbed in immediate issues to make headway against the powerful corporation opposition, which used anti-Bolshevist propaganda effectively against this far from communist plan. Yet it is not fair to say that the plan completely burnt out. Mr. Plum, before his death, expanded its application to other industries. It stimulated the zeal of the miners for nationalization of coal miners. It lives in the hearts of many railroad workers, and it led directly to the recent declaration of the American Federation of Labor in favor of industrial democracy. Footnote. 
see B&O Engine Number 1003, by Otto S. Bayer, Jr., Engineer for the Union, in the Survey Graphic, January 1924. Mr. Bayer gives interesting comparative figures as to the relative efficiency of the Baltimore and Ohio shops and the Pennsylvania shops, where the anti-union policy has prevailed. For the Plum Plan, see Plum and Roylance, Industrial Democracy, Hubes. End footnote. The Miners' Plan. The tentative plan of the official committee of the United Mine Workers, composed of Messrs. Brophy, Golden, and Mitch, also provided for nationalization of the mines with democratic administration. The plan takes into account the interests of the consumers, as well as the producers. Control belongs to the government as representing the public interest. Administration is primarily the function of the workers, including technicians and managers. Appropriate machinery, both of control and administration, is provided. The existence of labor unions and a labor party is declared to be necessary to the effective working of the proposed system. Discussions of this plan has been shelved by President Lewis of the United Mine Workers, but his organization at its last convention renewed its general endorsement of nationalization. The American Federation of Labor endorses industrial democracy. As far back as 1921, when interest in the Plum Plan still ran high, the Denver Convention of the American Federation of Labor instructed its executive council to investigate that plan and the whole subject of industrial democracy. In 1923, at Portland, the council made its report. That report was an endorsement of industrial democracy in general, from which we quote some significant sentences. The functional elements in our national life must fit themselves to work out their own problems, eradicate their abuses, and furnish America with an ever-increasing flood of commodities, both necessary and pleasure-giving. Industry alone has the competence, and it must demonstrate that competence through organization. The organized functional elements in industry will find easy of solution those problems to which politicians now turn their attention in futility. It was the abuses attendant upon our unregulated natural industrial impulse that brought upon our country that legislative monstrosity known as the Sherman Antitrust Law. It is a mistaken zeal on the part of political government, a zeal often encouraged by powers that misinterpret their own role in our industrial life, that burden us with the anachronism known as the injunction. This report was adopted at the convention without much discussion and apparently without much notice. The statement, unlike the Plum Plan, provides no program of action. President Gomper somewhat amplified the declaration by declaring for an economic, or rather an industrial Congress, to consider problems in industry, an idea which in turn needs careful amplification if one is to judge of its merits. This amplification, the Federation has not yet given, in spite of the interesting challenge of the Social Action Department of the National Catholic Welfare Association, to make labor's program at least as definite as the so-called Bishop's Program of the Catholic Church. Reporting to the El Paso Convention in 1924, the Executive Council of the American Federation of Labor again declared, Democracy cannot come into industry through the state a declaration that perhaps reflected Samuel Gomper's instinctive syndicalist leanings. Nevertheless, 
the AFL supported the La Follette government ownership program and endorsed the California Water and Power Bill, which provided for public ownership. At El Paso, the Committee on Resolutions deplored the failure of the bulk of organized employers to cooperate in the evolution towards industrial democracy without the intervention of the state, and it reiterated labor's utter, inevitable, and irreconcilable opposition to the conduct of industry exclusively or fundamentally for profit. President Gompers, in his address on the report, referred to the autocracy of what has come to be known as capitalism. In such statements is the basis for a more radical stand than the American Federation of Labor has yet taken. Workers' Education More significant than this paper declaration about industrial democracy are two movements through which the workers reach out after greater freedom and greater power over the conditions of its life. Workers' Education, the interest in which is one of the most heartening things in the labor movement, may refrain from definite propaganda, but it cannot be education at all unless it faces in a spirit of inquiry our whole social structure. Footnote. The Workers' Education Bureau, endorsed by the American Federation of Labor, with headquarters at 476 West 24th Street, New York City, will be glad to furnish further information. End footnote. The worker who has realized the need for further education as a worker is the worker who has begun to feel some of his responsibility for the social order of which he is a part. And this is a necessary step in industrial democracy. Trade Union Capitalism The second interesting development is the growth of banks, owned and controlled by labor unions. These may fairly be said to have passed the experimental stage. Labor seems to have established its ability to run banking on a sound basis. Footnote. There were, at the close of 1924, 30 labor banks with resources of over $90 million. C. The Forward March of Labor Banking, by Harry Laidler, in the International Trade Union Review, April-June, July-September, 1925. End footnote. These banks are cooperative to the extent that usually earnings over 10%, or sometimes 8%, are divided among depositors. They are democratic to the extent that they represent a control of credit, likely to take into account rather more than existing banks' other features of industrial enterprise than the ability to earn a profit. For instance, the amalgamated and international union banks in New York are considering plans for better housing for workers. They are already extending to their patron owners a service and an education in money matters beyond that of the regular banks. In proportion, moreover, as labor banks control credit, they can use it to strengthen those employers who meet their demands and weaken others. Labor banking, moreover, adds somewhat to the prestige of the labor movement. It tends to develop labor's confidence in its ability to run industry, gives labor's leaders a better insight into financial conditions that is likely to prove valuable in determining labor policy and may whet labor's appetite for further industrial control. Nevertheless, of necessity these banks operate within the framework and under the rules of capitalist society. Trade union capitalism, whatever may be said for it, cannot of itself greatly mitigate the wastes of our competitive profit-seeking order, or substitute the democratic principle of production for use, 
for the undemocratic, impersonal principle of production for profit. It is, moreover, an open question as to the effect of superimposing the psychology of a bank director upon the psychology of a labor union leader. It will scarcely promote democracy in labor's officialdom. It may sometime raise the question whether the leader will act as a member of the working class or the bank director class. Labor Ownership Some economists and businessmen have hailed in labor's banking, the opening of a door for the satisfaction of labor's dreams, without strikes or political action. Let labor, they say, use its collective savings and credit to buy into control and all will be well. This, of course, is no real solution at all. It may extend the number of nominal owners and introduce into the owning class a somewhat more liberal point of view. But every basis factor of our economic order, which makes for waste and war, would remain untouched. Footnote. See The Challenge of Waste by Stuart Chase and The Challenge of War by Norman Thomas, both in this series. End footnote. Production would still be for profit, primarily, rather than use. Especially in a country where labor is so imperfectly organized, as in the United States, this extension of labor capitalism may increase the gulf between organized workers who are acquiring a stake in ownership and the unorganized who have no such stake. We have a clear illustration of the difficulties of the situation in the dispute over the unionization of the miners in non-union territory employed in mines owned by the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. Whatever the merits of that conflict, its very existence is a warning of what inexorable limits are set on the usefulness of trade union capitalism in attaining industrial democracy. It is, moreover, quite absurd to suppose that wage earners can ever buy a majority control of industry away from the owning class. Probably nine-tenths of the workers in the United States receive less than the amount set by the Department of Labor as a minimum budget of wealth and decency for a family of five. Footnote. See Harry Wellington Laidler's How America Lives, League for Industrial Democracy pamphlet. End footnote. Professor Paul H. Douglas, moreover, has shown that it seems probable that the American working man can purchase less for the standard week's wage than during the 90s. Footnote. Paul H. Douglas, The Movement of Wages and the Future of Prices, Academy of Political Science. End footnote. How then can the workers, even if organized, buy out the 2% who now control 60% of our wealth? Footnote. This argument applies with much greater force to the attempt to persuade workers that by buying stock in the companies which employ them, they acquire real control. See on this, Chapter 7. End footnote. Limitations of Labor Union Democracy As a matter of fact, this limitation on what labor unions can do by trade union capitalism is the more potent because American labor is so far from organized. In-union ranks are only about 20% of the workers, and the factory industries from steel to textiles, although they are the characteristic form of modern industry, are especially ill-organized. Footnote. See Leo Woolman, The Growth of Trade Unions, especially page 35. National Bureau of Economic Research. End footnote. It cannot be said that the new unionism, with its banks, etc., 
is increasing union membership, and that is the basic job of a union. The Baltimore and Ohio plan, for instance, has not checked the decline in the membership of the machinists' union. No new plan can take the place of the militant devotion to the working class. Moreover, the unions have failed to carry democracy within their own ranks anywhere near to perfection. They are not free from the curse of race prejudice or from autocracy and bureaucracy in government and violence and corruption in factional strife. Trade unionism in some crafts plays into the heads of the employers by dividing the workers who ought to be organized industrially. No one can study the actual facts of the labor movement without realizing how absurd is the notion of those who believe that politics are bad only when they are connected with the state, and that if we get rid of the state, we shall get rid of politics. Labor unions have plenty of politics. They have, in short, their share of evils. But these evils will not be cured from without, as so many middle-class critics of unionism imagine. Still less will they be cured by the worker who stays out of the union. The right not to belong to a union, which is so dear to open shoppers, is a shabby and unsocial right. Its exercise makes a man not a hero but a parasite. Every worker owes the general improvement of his condition over that of the worker of an earlier period, primarily to the organized labor movement. And the worker who is deliberately outside a union is no more to be admired than the man without a country. In either case, it is the man who shares the life of his group, who praises and criticizes and works from within, who is doing his bit in the progress of humanity. He it is, and there are hosts of him of every race and nation, who has made, and today is making, the labor union the effective instrument of labor's emancipation. End of chapter 3